Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for joining us online as well. Great to see all of you here. Uh, You know, it pretty much goes without saying that uh, our country has experienced a really difficult week this past week. And I know there are probably uh, many of you who'd rather not talk about what's happened this past week, what happened with the attack on our Capitol on Wednesday, Um, partly because it's probably all we've heard about over the past few days, it seems like. And in many ways, maybe you feel like a church sermon should be focused on other things. I want to tell you, I'm not going to spend the entire message this morning talking about what happened this past week, but I feel like it is important for us to spend a few minutes on it this morning as we begin, as we begin into particularly a new series on the book of James. I think there are a few reasons for that. First of all, this is a big deal. What happened on Wednesday is literally unprecedented. unprecedented. We saw something that happened that we have never seen happen before, and it was heartbreaking and, and difficult in so many different ways. And for us to come in here this morning and try to gloss over that and pretend like it hasn't affected us, pretend like five people didn't die from this, pretend like this hasn't affected uh, our country and that it's something that is weighing on us right now would be disingenuous. And so I think it's important for us to realize that because it's not okay and we're not okay today as a result of what happened this past week. It's weighing on us. It's a burden. Secondly, as Christians, we are called to care and to love the things, to care for and to love the things that God loves. I believe that God cares about what happened on Wednesday at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. I believe that he loves the people who were involved in every way on each side in all ways that they were involved. And I believe he loves this world that he's created and that he cares for. And so we're called as Christians to love and to care for the same things that God cares for. And so it's important for us to talk about that. Third, we need to have a biblical perspective on this. You know, you have heard perspectives all over the place throughout this week. Chances are you've heard several from either media or online or wherever it is you get your news. News comes with a perspective embedded in it today, and so you've heard all kinds of different perspectives. Maybe you've talked with friends and family members, and you've got their perspective. But more than anything, it's important that we have a biblical perspective about things like this that happen in our world. And we need to, in order to do that, we need to discuss that together as a faith family. What is it that God is telling us about why this happened, about how it happened, and what to do going forward? And then finally... This last reason relates to really timing, because we are going through a book, starting a series on the book of James this morning, that actually lines up a lot with what, at least the major themes of this book, lines up with a lot of what we actually saw take place over this past week, especially on Wednesday. One theme from the book of James is that as Christians, we are called, again, not to ignore the world around us, But we are called to love the world around us and to engage the world with the mission of Jesus. And so the things that happen in our world, we are called to respond in some way in which shows that the mission of Jesus is still moving forward in this world. You know, when something like what happened on Wednesday happens, we should be concerned not just for our country, but for the people who were involved. We had people involved in a violent attack on the Capitol building who are people who are created in the image of God whom God loves. We have people who are defending that capital, and not only the building, but the people who are inside. Again, people whom God created in his image, people whom God loves, defending 
People who are created in God's image, people whom God loves. A second theme from the book of James that we're going to see as we go through this is that what we saw demonstrated on Wednesday is evidence of the fact that words matter. Ideas have consequences, and beliefs are often the basis for action. When we get into the book of James, one of the things we're going to see is that beliefs and action go hand in hand. And based upon certain words that, stoked, that have stoked division and violence and lies that have communicated false ideas, those things led to beliefs that caused people to act. And as a result, five people died. Many others were injured, including over 50 police officers in the attack on Capitol Hill. The thousands of people who were at the Capitol, including the hundreds who stormed the building, even had some, apparently even had plans for even more violence than what we saw happen on Wednesday. And they did that because they believed largely in a narrative. A narrative that had consequences. A narrative that caused in some ways the truth to be unrecognizable in such a way that they believed that the truth and the, the action that would come from that truth was to storm the Capitol building in the way that they did violently. And as James will remind us, ideas and beliefs rarely stay just ideas and beliefs. They are often the soil by which, on which action sprouts and action lives. And the people who attacked the Capitol building and attacked the people in that building did what they did because their beliefs and their ideas, which they considered to be right, and which many, even probably after being arrested for what they did, still consider to be right, led to what they did. A third theme, as a result, that we're going to see throughout the book of James, that we were reminded of this past week, is that lies have to be exposed and countered by the truth. You know, brokenness, falsity, hatred, violence, and sin can only be re redeemed and removed by the truth and by the mercy of Jesus. As a part of the attack on the Capitol, you may have seen some attackers actually claim that what they were doing was in service of Jesus. In fact, in one case, a literal cross was erected right in the middle of the mobs that attacked the building on Wednesday. You know, we have several examples of the Gospels, in the Gospels, where even Jesus' followers wanted Jesus to be an insurrectionist. They wanted to lead a violent insurrectionist attack on the Roman Empire, which, by the way, was an actual oppressive regime. This was not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus was not violent insurrection. Jesus continually exposed that for what it was, a lie from Satan. In fact, at one point, looking at Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan, as Peter encouraged Jesus to not go the way that he was going. The people who attacked the Capitol on Wednesday were angry. They were hurting, and they were deceived. The people who have been t attacking our cities for the past several months, causing rioting, burning down buildings, and also killing police officers on the other side of the political spectrum are people who are angry, people who have been hurt, and people who have been deceived. As Christians, we believe that the truth of Jesus is the hope of the world. And I think it's becoming more and more clear as the days go on that actual redemption is not found in the systems of power in this world, they're not found in the ways of this world, and as the book of James is going to present to us even this morning, that the double-minded person who wants to worship at the altar of the power idols of this world, be that political power or wealth, 
is going to find himself in an unstable setting if that's what he ends up giving his heart to. The idols of politics, the idols of wealth, the idols of power will throw us around constantly like the unsettled waves of the sea. And so this morning as we come to the book of James, we are coming to it from the standpoint of getting clarity. Even before what happened this week, this was going to be our focus in this book because one of the things that we address and can't, and can't help but see in the book of James is how quickly James gets to the point. I mean, the book of James is five short chapters, but it's five chapters of just pure gospel adrenaline. From the very beginning, James is laying out for us, this is what it looks like to live. He joins really well what we know as orthopraxy and orthodoxy. Orthopraxy is right living. Orthodoxy is right belief. And James does a great job on page after page of showing us how orthodoxy and orthopraxy go hand in hand. Right belief and right living live together in harmony in the gospel. And in fact, they're expected to be partners together. And so as we open the book of James, if you've ever been reading through the Bible at some point and thinking to yourself, well, these are great ideas, this theology is wonderful, and, and, and I really like this, but what do I do with that? Then you're going to really love the book of James. Because James doesn't waste any time in telling us, this is what this looks like, and now this is what it means for us to live this out. And as James would say, of course, faith without works is dead. His expectation, again, is that these words that we read in the pages of Scripture are words that matter. And these words are the seeds of action. They're meant to change us, and they're meant to impact the world around us. This is why, the, this is why really the book of James has become a favorite among many Bible readers, because it's so straightforward. And because it's so straightforward, because it tells us the truth, about what we're to believe and how, we're, how, we are, how we are to live, it brings clarity, like maybe some other books don't as directly. And that's why, if you may have noticed, the title of, of the series is Clarity in an Unclear World. Now, getting clarity in an unclear world. Now, if I can put it this way, I think this is a time for us to get optimal clarity about what it means to be a Christian in a world that is increasingly unclear sometimes about what it looks like to live that way. You know, on Wednesday, and it's funny how you get clarity sometimes in the places that you don't expect it. On Wednesday, as I was going through my Twitter feed, kind of following the things and the way things were going um, on Wednesday, uh, I came across a tweet that just gave me clarity, and it really came from an unexpected source. It came from Patricia Heaton, if you know who Patricia Heaton is. She's the actress who played Deborah Barone. Uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, if you've seen that show, right? So this is Raymond's wife, of all places, where I got some clarity. I don't even follow her on Twitter, but I think somebody retweeted that I was following. But anyway, it just struck me as I was reading through all of this, as I was reading through all these updates about what was going on and watching some of the news about what was happening. And she said this in the midst of all that, if you're a common sense person, you probably don't feel like you have a home in this world right now. If you're a Christian, you know that you were never meant to. She's obviously a Christian. But for that moment, and when I read that, it brought clarity in a way that reminded me of what this really looks like in the midst of an unclear world. I think if I could say in a nutshell, that's what the, this is what the book of James does for us. The book of James brings moments of clarity for us in a world that seems to be unclear, chaotic, fuzzy, difficult, whatever it may be, confusing, And so there's a lot of value to this book. I'm excited about getting into this great book of the Bible. And here's the thing, is that we're going to be going through it over the next 12 weeks. 
And I don't know what the next three months are going to look like. I don't know what it's going to look like in three months. This series is designed to take us through Palm Sunday, so the Sunday before Easter. By the time we arrive at Easter here in 2021, I have no idea what this world is going to look like. I don't think any of us do. But one thing that I'm confident in is that we, as we dive into these words in the book of James, God's words to us, that we can have hope no matter what the world around us looks like. And that's the purpose of this. So let's get, in, let's get into the book of James. Let's start a little bit into, into chapter one this morning. We're gonna be going through verses one through eight, really the first quarter or so of James chapter one. And here's one thing to remember, that even though we know that the Bible, of course, is God's word written to all people, God often uses human authors, particular men, to write to a particular audience at a particular time. And so when we go through a letter like this in the New Testament, it, in particular, it helps us to understand a little bit, first of all, about the author and about who he's writing to, because that'll help us understand a little bit more about the message. It gives us context into what the author is writing about. And so we actually get in the very first verse of this book, James chapter 1, verse 1, an introduction to the author and an introduction to who he is writing to. And it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, it's probably not a big surprise that a book called James is written by a guy named James, right? But the question is, who is this James? Because James is a common name. It's a common name today. It was actually a common name in the ancient world. And so there's a lot of people that we might understand this to be. Who is this James and what exactly, where exactly does he come from? Because he doesn't say a lot about himself. But what we know, and I think scholars, uh, most scholars, and, and this is something I believe in as well, is that ja the, the James who wrote this letter is probably James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the biological children of Mary and Joseph. There's a few reasons why we know this. First of all, as we read through this letter, it's going to remind us a lot of the words that Jesus said in the Gospels, in particular the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount and the book of James go hand in hand in a lot of ways, and so that's really great for us because we just got through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to see a lot of connections, a lot of reinforcement there. Another indicator, of course, is that the fact that James doesn't talk about who he is really kind of carries this, and, and we see this throughout this letter, is that there's a, there's a sense of authority with which James writes. Now, James, at the time that this letter was written, which was probably 10 years after Jesus, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, James was the bishop of the church in the city of Jerusalem, which was probably the biggest and most impactful church at the time that he wrote this letter. So in other words, James doesn't spend a lot of time introducing himself because everybody who read this would have known exactly who James was. Oh, this is James, that guy, the one who is the bishop and the head of the church in Jerusalem. But notice something else that happens here as well is that although James doesn't, James doesn't spend a lot of time talking about who he is, because of course people know him, but at the same time, he is cognizant of the fact that he is not, that his primary identity is not as the bishop, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but that it's how? How does he introduce himself? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an important theme to latch on to. What James is going to draw us to repeatedly over and over again is that our earthly status, our earthly position means very little compared to what our true position is in the kingdom. And James doesn't present himself as James, the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. He presents himself instead as his kingdom identity, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that theme take place throughout this letter where 
The high are brought low and the low are lifted up by God. Huge theme in the book of James. And finally, another, really another indicator that this is James, the brother of Jesus, is that we see a lot of emphasis on the Jewish background of this letter. James does a great job of tying together for us Old Testament story, Old Testament belief, and how that seamlessly connects to the New Testament. How the New Testament, in other words, and what Jesus has done is the fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament and what the Old Testament story was looking forward to. James does a good job of bringing those two things together, even in the very first verse, talking about writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which, of course, is a reference to the Jewish Christians who were in that area. Which, at the time that James wrote, which is, this is the earliest book, probably, that was written chronologically in the New Testament, It was written before the Gospels. It was written before all of Paul's letters. There was a huge Jewish contingent. In fact, most of the early church was made up of Jewish Christians. And so that's who James is writing to. Now, we're going to say some more things about the book, including how this encourages us to live on mission as Christians, those kinds of things. But I want to continue as we look in James chapter 1 with verses 2 through 8. And this is what James says in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, in what we've just read, there are really two big parts to this passage. The first big part is this. James discusses this idea of what trials are. And in a lot of ways, when when we understand what he's talking about in terms of trials, trials is a big, broad term. And it often incorporates a lot of those things that causes the world around us to be unclear. A trial, the word that is used for trial here in the original language is a word that just means unexpected yet unwelcome circumstances and situations. Now, I think more than anything, that defines <laughs> in a lot of ways the past year that all of us have experienced together, right? Unexpected and unwelcome circumstances have been all over the place. We could call almost 2020 the year of unexpected and unwelcome circumstances. That's how much it's characterized the world that we have lived in, and the world that we've been in. And so when we see James talking about trials, he is talking about many of the very things that we are experiencing and that we are going through on a daily basis, but also as a collective together. Now, think about that. Given that he is talking about trials, it seems really strange to go back to the beginning of verse 2 and see what he says right out of the gate. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. This is a statement of celebration. In fact, it's actually in its form is an imperative. It's a command to say, count it all joy. And you might expect him after that statement to say something like, count it all joy, my brothers, when God blesses you with everything that you have prayed for, when you see his faithfulness, when he answered your prayers, when everything is blessing in your life. But instead what he says is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various unexpected and unwelcome difficulties, circumstances, and sufferings. Now we know he says that because then he points to how God works through those situations to bring about faith, perseverance, and ultimately 
character and maturity into our lives. But I want to skip down to verse 5. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I want to skip down to verse 5 because I think verse 5 tells us exactly. It's the hinge point between the two major parts of this section. And I think not only is it, an, is it one of the most important threads in this early chapter of the book of James, but it's a major thread all the way through the book of James. And it's this question of the wisdom that God gives us. James is big on the wisdom of God. And you may know if you've ever explored what the, what the Bible has to say about wisdom, that there's a difference and a contrast between human wisdom and what we might call biblical wisdom or godly wisdom. For instance, think about the wisest person that you know in your life. Somebody who you would consider wise. Who comes to mind right away? Probably a person who knows a lot of things. Right? They've got a lot of knowledge. No matter what you say, they've got something to add to that. Oh, maybe you didn't know this. Or did you know that? Maybe it's somebody who, probably somebody who is older than you, right? Because typically we value people who have more life experience as those people who we consider to be wise. Maybe it's a person who has a lot of emotional intelligence. They're able to remain calm. They're able to remain collected even in the midst of difficulty, conflict, those kinds of things. When everybody else is panicking, this person has just a sense of peace and emotional intelligence, intelligence about them. Maybe it's somebody who gives great life advice. They know how to say just the right thing at just the right time. And you've appreciated that in their lives, and you would consider them to be wise. Well, the concept of wisdom, scripturally, is actually a little bit different than all those things. As great as those things may be, and as much as they reflect an aspect of wisdom, biblical wisdom here is best defined, really, as the ability to see things from God's perspective. It connects back to verse 3, where, where, where we see the testing of our faith and, 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 and faith and how faith connects to wisdom. But what it does is it helps us to see things from God's perspective so that as faith grows, which is really trust in God grows, we begin to see a little bit more about what God is doing, why he is doing it, and what it looks like from his perspective. So what this means is that childlike faith, in many cases, that simply just trusts God, is actually biblical wisdom. And that that means then is that you don't need buckets of life experience to be wise in this way that James is talking about. Instead, the basis for biblical wisdom is actually faith. It's trusting God. Or as Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And certainly life experience and the way that James talks about it here can lead to wisdom. Right, if you've gone through life experiences where your faith has been tested and you've, and you've grown in perseverance, you've grown in faith, you've grown in maturity, certainly those kinds of life experiences can add to biblical wisdom. But in the end, just because you've gone through life and just because you know things and just because you know how to get things done doesn't necessarily mean that that is a reflection of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is something that is different. You know, we've all heard the phrase, a penny saved is a penny earned, right? That's Genuinely, that's, that's been considered financial wisdom throughout the ages, right? That it's so important that, that saving financially is wise. That any time you have an opportunity to save and put away for a rainy day, it's wise. And certainly there is some wisdom to that. But sometimes, according to the kingdom, the wisest thing to do with our money is not to save every penny, but to sacrificially give in a way that doesn't allow us to, earn, to, to save every penny that we've earned. Sometimes, God calls us in a way 
to give the extra money that we've earned this month, maybe as a result of a bonus or a commission, completely to those who are in need sacrificially and not put it away for a rainy day. Which, if you have a financial advisor, would probably drive him crazy, right? Because ultimately, the wisdom of the kingdom is different often than the wisdom of the world. As good and as wise as those things may be, at times, the biblical wisdom of God looks totally different than what we would consider the wisdom of the world to be. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Now, that doesn't mean that we throw out all conventional wisdom. I mean, the book of Proverbs itself is full of conventional wisdom. But it's to realize that God's standards of wisdom are often different than what we see in the world. And according to James here, the difference between the wisdom of God and human wisdom is often seen in the way that we face trials, in the way that we face those unexpected and unwelcome circumstances and situations that come into our lives. And in terms of trials that happen to us, there's really three ways in which these things can take place. First of all, sometimes we face trials just because of the world that we live in. We live in a world that is broken, a world that's fraught with all kinds of difficulty, and as a result, we face trials sometimes just because of the world that we live in. And COVID's an example of that, right? None of us expected this, um, and, it, and it's come to us just because viruses and brokenness exist in the creation that we're a part of. A second way that we might encounter trials is actually by our adversary, Satan, bringing testing and trials into our lives. We've seen this in a couple of ways in the scriptures, most notably in Job's life and in Jesus' temptation before his earthly ministry. That God permitted Satan to test and to tempt Job and Jesus, that he had a role in that. And as we see throughout scripture, Satan is also explained to us as someone who is an attacker, an active adversary who is bent on destroying and conquering. And so sometimes we face trials because of the work of Satan in our lives, our adversary. A third way, believe it or not, that we face trials is that God himself appoints trials in our lives as believers. And what's true, I think, about all the ways and all the, way, all, all the ways we uh, engage trials and the way trials come to us is that God always allows those things to happen to us because he is sovereign. And many a times, and it's, all, it's always aimed at being something that is for our good and for his glory. Sometimes those trials are appointed to us for just what James says right here, for growth in faith, for perseverance, and for maturity. They're designed to be on times that are uncomfortable, times that challenge us, times that cause us to ultimately trust more fully in God in the end. Sometimes they're things that stretch us and cause us to and cause, and cause uh, us to reveal idols in our hearts that need to be repented of and changed. Sometimes they call us to, call, to come back to Jesus in place of those things that we might be trusting in instead. But here's the thing about trials. I think if you think about it this way, people are often concerned about where trials come from. Right? We just talked about those three ways, and you would talk, sometimes when I talk with people, they're wondering, where exactly is this coming from? Is this coming from just because this is just what happens in life sometimes? It's the randomness of it. Is, it. is it happened because this is Satan attacking me, or is God appointing this in my life? 
And look, I don't know if that question is necessarily as important as the question about what God is actually doing in the midst of those trials. I mean, even if you look at Job and Jesus' life, Job had to ask God if God would allow him to test Job. In Jesus' case, when he went to be tested in the desert, we're told that it's the Holy Spirit who led him into that to be tested by Satan. So I don't know that those lines are necessarily as clearly cut as we may think that they are sometimes. But the bigger question, the bigger point in all of this is what is God doing in the midst of this to lead me to greater faithfulness? It's the growth of faith, it's the growth of wisdom to see from the standpoint of what God is doing to be faithful in the midst of this trial. And look, as we close this morning, we've learned that trials will happen. And as they happen, that the wisdom of God is so critically important to embrace during those times. And I think one thing that we see in the middle of this passage again in verse 5 as it turns to this discussion about wisdom and then James ends this section in verses 6 through, through 8, he talks about this question of doubt. That's the last thing that I want to hit on this morning because I think it's important for us to understand exactly what James is talking about. Because he says, first of all, it's a pretty big deal, the one who doubts is the one who will not hear from God, right? That God is the one who will uh, not receive wisdom from God. And so the question should be, what, what exactly does doubt mean? Well, I think it doesn't necessarily refer to doubt as honest doubts that we may have in our circumstances and our situations. God's not afraid of our doubts and our questions. If you open up the Bible, especially in places like the Psalms, what you see over and over again is that the psalmist doubted God often. They doubted what God was doing in a certain situation. Maybe they even doubted God's motives from time to time. God, why are you doing what you're doing? God, are you here? Do you hear me? Are you listening? But in the end, one thing that we also see as well is that the psalmist in those cases often went back to the character of God despite what their circumstances told them. And they affirmed their trust in the character of God. But God, I know who you are and I trust you. I don't see why you're doing what you're doing here and it's difficult and it's unclear and it's confusing. But in the end, what I have is to trust you and to trust your character. And I think when we look in verse 8, especially when James talks about the double-minded man who is the one who doubts, who has one foot in and one foot out, that's kind of what we're looking at here, is that the double-minded man is not the one who has honest doubts about the circumstances that he's facing and where God might be in it, but the double-minded man is the one who doubts ultimately the character of God, is the one who gets to a place where they see what's happening around them and it causes them to doubt the goodness, the faithfulness, the justness, the righteousness of God. And it makes sense when you think about it from this perspective because why would that person want to receive wisdom from a God who they don't believe is true, good, just, and right? Why would they want to know the perspective of God if they don't trust the character of God? And so James says this comes back to a place of faith where we can trust God and we have stability even in the midst of what we are facing, these unwelcome, uncertain, and unexpected circumstances. This morning, as we've opened this series, we've talked a lot about what it means to get clarity. And we'll continue to talk about that through the next 11 weeks. But I think one thing that we want to be cognizant of and remember is that Getting clarity is not the same as seeing clearly. 
In other words, we haven't been promised that God will allow us to see clearly what is going on around us. In fact, in many ways, we live in an unclear world. We will continue to live in an unclear world, and it may even get foggier and more, consume, and, and more confusing as the days go on. It will continue to happen until Jesus comes back. And so getting clarity is not necessarily about seeing clearly in the midst of our circumstances or seeing our circumstances clearly. Even Paul says at our best, we might see in a mirror dimly what God is doing and the redemptive purposes around us. The point is, though, is that we can get clarity with a clear trust of God and the wisdom of God, even in a world that is unclear and a world that remains chaotic. And that's what God offers. That's what he wants us to have. I want you to notice that in these last verses here, as James says, those, and especially in verses 5 and 6, that those who want to have wisdom, they're to do one thing. They're to ask God. God doesn't send you on a journey. He doesn't, he doesn't play hide and seek. He doesn't play spiritual whack-a-mole with you so that you can try to discover wisdom. He simply says, if you want this wisdom, this thing that is more precious than gold, I don't know if there's anything more valuable in this world that's given to us as a gift other than our salvation, then the wisdom of God. And God says, look, this is how you get it. Just ask of me. And James says, look, there is a God who generously wants to give you this wisdom. There are a lot of things we ask for in prayer that we may not see God actually grant us. I think this is one of those things that every time we go to God and ask for it, he is faithful to give us and to give it to us generously. The question is not whether or not God is hesitant to give us wisdom. The question is whether or not we are hesitant to ask of him. And so this morning, I want to close by doing that very thing. We need clarity. We need clarity. We need to, know, we need to see from God's perspective, and we need the wisdom of God in order, to, in order to do that. And we need to ask by faith in the God who generously gives to us. And so this morning as we close and the band comes to join us, I want us just to do that in response. Because how do you ask, how do you ask God? You talk to God about it. You pray. You search the scriptures. You commune with God. And so let's do that here this morning as we approach the throne of grace and prayer. Lord, we come to you knowing that you were the one who has promised us, that you were a God who gives generously of his children who ask of you. And as we come to the book of James this morning and we see your word tells us that you will give generously to anyone who asks by faith, Lord, we ask that you would give us the faith to ask for the wisdom of God. That we would see our perspective, that we would see from your perspective the things that we need to see. You've not promised us, Lord, that we would see clearly in every circumstance the way things are going to turn out, but we don't need that. You know that what we need is to see clearly that we can trust in the God who does. And to have clarity in coming to you and knowing, Lord, ultimately what you're trying to teach us in every circumstance is just what James says here. Through faith, perseverance. And through perseverance, when it gives way over time to growth and to maturity. That what we find on the other side of that maturity is something more valuable than anything we could desire in this world. Lord, I pray for us. I pray for our country. I pray for the world that we are facing right now, who in so many ways are experiencing confusion, chaos, sadness, 
anger. The loss of life. And, and it's so easy for us to call out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But we know that according to your wisdom, Lord, we are here, and we're still here, and we're still awaiting the return of Jesus. And so in the meantime, we've been called to engage this world with Christ-likeness so that the world may, may gain clarity through the gospel of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that where, our, where we've been blinded, Lord, you would lift the blinders. We pray that where our hearts have been hardened, Father, that you would soften our hearts, that we would receive the true wisdom of God in knowing what it looks like to love this world and to love you in the way that you have designed us and called us to do. Lord, we don't need to tell you that this world is hurting. You see it, you feel it, you weep the same tears that those who hurt and those who are angry are weeping even today. But we trust in a Savior who's overcome those things, who one day will wipe every tear from our eyes because he is bringing it all to a victorious end. And although it may be hard for us to see that now, Father, we trust in that, and that's the clarity that we need this morning. Lord, would you give us your wisdom? We are asking this morning, would you give us your perspective would you infuse us with your truth, Spirit? Would you open our eyes to what Jesus is doing through the churches in the world and what you've called us to do as well? We're asking like you tell us to ask. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Favorite line from that song is, the wind and waves still know his name. And Whatever you're facing today, whatever we may face in the weeks, months to come, we know that the wind, the waves that threaten us still know his name. That he is the God who has come to save us. He is the God who promises good for us. And so may that be an encouragement to all of us as we move forward that as we dive into this book a little deeper, we're going to see that clearly on every page. That we have clarity, we've been given clarity because of the God who sees it all and the God who is in control. So remember that, remember that this morning as we leave. I pray that as you leave out this week that the sovereign God who loves you, who has created you, and who saves you by his great grace and mercy would be the one who you draw closer to even as you face trials this week, even as you face the minor irritations of what it means to live in this life day to day. May you remember his goodness towards you. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. 
For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.